future of the internet. It does expose security risks in ways that you don't if you're controlling and, and having an authoritarianly controlled architecture. US ASEAN Summit. We are in a very different environment. We are now not just practicing diplomacy, but there is a war in Ukraine happening that is shifting in a, in a very fundamental way, the tectonic shift of the geopolitics. Afghanistan's opium ban. Now they're the government trying to hold together a profoundly failed state with the emergence of the next non-state actor and insurgency threat in rural areas in the form of ISK. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In April this year, a coalition of over 60 countries released a Declaration for the Future of the Internet, a joint partnership that aims to actively support the internet as a free, open, global digital ecosystem. Carly Winkler, Jocelyn Kang and Bart Hogaveen discuss what the declaration means for human rights and sustainable development. Thanks for joining me today, Joe and Bart. On the 28th of April, the US White House released a joint declaration with 60 global partners for their vision for the future of the internet. And it was in response to rising digital authoritarianism and repression of freedom of expression on the internet and in public forum. Now, this seems like a great idea. It's about protecting human rights and fundamental freedoms, being inclusive and having affordable connectivity so that all people can benefit from the digital economy. But this is a pretty simplistic approach. Yeah, I suppose when the internet was first created, it was a lot about connectivity and sharing of information. But the issues we face today are a lot about security, data privacy, things like that. Yeah, so we've walked through this idea of the internet utopia previously in the past, and it's great when everyone behaves well on the internet. Didn't really take into account disinformation as used as a political or ideological tool or malicious or criminal behaviour, and and this is the world we sort of live in today. What do you think, Art? Well, I, I think that's that's a very right characterization. I think the world we that we see today. I, I think my main question is about let's say where where this is coming from. I mean, is this part of a broader strategy from U.S. and allies? I mean, you talk about global partners, but I think it's very good to point out that it's fifty nine other states rather than partners. And I think one of the things that the U.S. but also others have been trying to do is get kind of this multi stakeholder community involved, so industry, civil society, anyone who has a stake and a role in the future of the internet. Um, and I think that's kind of what I see as, uh, don't really see where, where this is coming from at the moment um, and how it fits into kind of the broader picture of, call it cyber diplomacy, not done by states. So one of the interesting narratives I find in this statement and also in, in, in previous statements is this this idea that the internet should be unfragmented, it should be open, free, interoperable globally. And I think definitely in the global south, you see a tendency to talk about things like cyber sovereignty and kind of impose borders in the digital domain as well. And I think the West has been pretty poor at explaining why that is not a helpful approach to dealing with internet governance or, or cybersecurity issues. And I think so we, we, we kind of lacking a, a narrative that really addresses some of the legitimate security concerns that that states and nations have. 
And I think in reality, if you look at also what countries like the US, Australia, and many European countries are doing, is that we are imposing some form of borders in the digital environment. I think the big question is that is kind of at the political and at the policy and at the regulatory level. But how does that affect kind of the technical integrity of the network? Is that still kind of one core network that is indeed interoperable and which is guided by universal and global norms and standards? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting that you mentioned borders. It's interesting that we're trying to put borders around cyberspace. Cyberspace, I think people forget, is a is a human created environment and that can be controlled and shaped and improved by those those who want to. And we are seeing states who want to control and shape those information flows that we're seeing over the internet. Technology has become more than just something we use. It's become part of our daily lives. And it's become more than just an accessory or auxiliary. Really, these days it shapes our economy, it shapes our national security, it shapes our personal security as well. So definitely, as you mentioned, Carly, like things like disinformation, I mean, that affects individuals. And even if you're not politically minded or, you know, want to control states or individuals, you become affected just being part as a, as a user of the internet. I think this is a really interesting point. And as we've sort of said, it's a global conglomeration that we're talking about here. We're talking about infrastructure that spans the entire globe. And it isn't simply borders, it's a a different set of cultures. And this plays out a lot in the AI domain where we talk about ethics principles where technology is human-centred. But which humans are we talking about? All of these cultures have different identities, values and truths. And what is true for one group is a different narrative for another. And so we've seen this in the social media domain where on international social media platforms, we have different domains, different regions that are focused around different cultural values and what is acceptable to share and what is not. So this idea that it might also run over into the technical domain, I think is also a great one because we have started to run into the issue a lot where if we open up the technical architecture and in a technical domain, connect all of these networks to each other, we design for that. It does expose security risks in ways that you don't if you're controlling and, and having an authoritarianly controlled architecture. And in some cases, we do want to have more of that. We've been talking about excluding certain companies from our critical infrastructure supply chains, such as Huawei being a provider of 5G infrastructure within Australia. So in some cases that is desirable and and there are advantages to that colonialistic approach to infrastructure. But I guess there are there's some things that we wouldn't want shared, such as child sexual abuse material. You know, we wouldn't want hate speech. But I guess it's also who decides, you know, who, who is it that decides what is acceptable and, and not acceptable to put out there? In democracies, the public decide, and it's based on a, a cultural norms that are associated with that particular group. And cultural norms differ from country to country, within countries, and definitely from region to region. Exactly. Um, one thing that springs to my mind was one session at the Sydney Dialogue where we had the New Zealand Foreign Minister speak to other Indigenous leaders, and I think they made a very compelling argument that the way we in the West deal with technology is very individualistic. Our approach of how to, how do we deal and work with technologies for kind of our personal benefits or for kind of uh, our personal prosperity. Um, Whereas, for instance, in in the Pacific, we talk about kind of communal values. How do we make sure that technology today is a benefit for future generations rather than how it's affecting us 
right here, right now. So I think this, this idea of something universal, which is definitely there somewhere, but there is also definitely a need for technology in whichever way and form it comes to be appropriate for different cultural settings. And as you rightly point out, in even not formally democracy, but in democratic societies, where it's fit for purpose in different cultures, in different uh, societies. And, and I think the one, th sorry, the one thing that I think is not helpful in that declaration that the White House put out is that they, I think in the first paragraph, they talk about democratic societies and non-democratic societies. And I think that puts away how, do, how we can engage with countries which don't want or don't call themselves democracies, but which do have an interest in making sure that technology and the internet is also there for the benefit of their people and their economy and their prosperity. And interestingly, even in democratic societies, we're having issues with this because yep. those cultural values and norms associated with democracy is not represented by the people who own this infrastructure. One of the goals that, that was written into this declaration was having multi-stakeholder internet governance, so having um, different groups of distributed coordination and governance over internet infrastructure. But, of course, what we're seeing is that is being consolidated in the hands of... A happy few. A very, very happy few and wealthy few. Joe, you had a great expression for like those major technology leaders in the in the tech industry, right? What was that? Ah, uh, tech oligarchs. So essentially, there's a, a small few who have a lot of money and a lot of control. And in this case, they have control of the platforms, which essentially is the public square. And they have control of the data of the users that, that use their their platform. And in essence, we didn't vote them in. The people who use their platforms didn't vote them in. And it's not as if we can vote them out either. So it's really hard to have a democratic system when you have an oligarch in control of all of the information and all the platforms on which that's going to be shared. Absolutely. And I guess the most, the most politically notable right now is, of course, Twitter and Elon Musk purchasing Twitter for $44 billion. And while that may be an exciting plaything for a very wealthy individual to have a platform that he can shape to his own desires – it doesn't reflect democratic values in any way. We can't unelect him in the next couple of years. It was never for the people, by the people, if it's going to be owned and controlled by one very wealthy individual. Interesting that you mentioned that. But, for instance, Microsoft, who has been kind of supporting ideas and policymaking around uh, responsible use of the internet, has been coming out very strongly in support of, for instance, that, that, that statement that put out by the White House. But I think Microsoft in this case is a bit of kind of the odd one out because most other technology companies don't really want to engage in, in kind of public policy discussions or let alone, let's say, what are ethical and normative frameworks for future use. So, so what, is kind of, what should we expect from Elon Musk as the CEO of Twitter? What, what, should, we want, what, what should we demand from him? So I think there's, there's great concern with the recent purchase that access to Twitter's data will be restricted to researchers. The ability to actually investigate what is on there, what has been taken down, what has been perhaps restricted in its propagation. So we certainly need clear audit and accountability processes that aren't centralised in a single person. I mean, if we're talking about building digital trust on platforms, it's not by having one person with the key to absolutely everything. It's having oversight and the ability to investigate uh, independently, yeah, independently and transparently investigate um, so how do what's happening on the platform. How do we organise global transparency and accountability of technology, internet, but also what states do in this space? 
I think that's a good question. I mean, I, I don't think we can just restrict it to one platform. And I think the, the issue that platforms have is because the internet is global, the customer base is global, they need to operate in this cyberspace, but they also are operating technically within countries and need to operate within the laws of those countries. And each country has different laws, which makes it difficult for these tech, tech companies. One of the, um, I mean, in response and in and building on what you've been saying, one of the things that has been kind of shaping global order in the past centuries is the whole idea of nation states and, and, and have, being able to kind of have sovereign uh, rights, responsibilities on your territory. And I wonder whether some kind of sovereign rights and duties and responsibilities in the cyberspace is all, could also be a force of structure and stability rather than um, the opposite. I'd like to see some accountability for and recognition for the value of the data that is made available on these platforms. So at the moment, the technology giants make an enormous amount of money from the data that they're harvesting from all of the users and, in fact, people who aren't users of these platforms. And yet those users who are providing the the raw material for these platforms that they profit from see no benefit from that at all, financially or, or otherwise. And so country, countries like India, for example, who have an enormous population, produce a, an enormous amount of data on a daily basis, don't actually get a say in how that data is used. So I would like to see a model where people have considerably more control over their own data that is made available. They can choose exactly what does get made available and to who for what use. And perhaps we really should consider paying people for the use of their data. People can selectively allow their data to be used if they wish, but they should benefit from it in the same way that the big companies using it should. So you're wishing for a Web 3.0, Carly? Oh, what would we put in a Web 3.0? Many, many things. I guess that comes back to the original point of we've been through this utopian process, we've hit a bunch of issues and maybe this declaration is a great vision for the future, but it's going to require an awful lot more work to make it practical. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks. Pleasure. On the 12th and 13th of May, ASEAN leaders will meet US President Joe Biden in Washington DC for a special summit. Ahead of the summit, Dr. David Engel speaks to Dr. Huang Le Tu about ASEAN's politics and Indonesia's decision to keep Russia on the G20 invitation list. Hi Wong, how are you? Hi David, good to be with you. Now, on the 12th and 13th of May, they're going to be a major summit, ASEAN-US summit in Washington. Now, this in some respects is take two of this event. Perhaps you can fill the listeners in on why it's take two. Well, it took a while to schedule the summit. I think there is a special summit that is hosted by the US President Joe Biden in the White House, inviting the ASEAN leaders to attend, which is you know a rare, rather rare, right? Long time anticipated sort of a gesture from the US to engage with the rest of the region. As you know, during the COVID international troubles were not that prevalent and we haven't seen President Biden in Southeast Asia yet. So it's a good opportunity for him to meet the leaders of ASEAN. And the last time such event happened was actually a long time ago. It was under President Obama in 2016. There was sunny lands that the U.S. hosted a special ASEAN summit, which is really very positively received and very nice picture of all 10 ASEAN leaders. 
uh, shaking hands and ASEAN signature shaking hand with President Barack Obama. This time around, we don't know if that's going to be possible because we already know here reports saying that some representative will not be present. So we might expect no representation or formal representation from Myanmar, that's for sure. But also President Duterte of the Philippines said he would not be coming because it coincides with the Filipino election time. So it's unlikely that he will attend. So we will see how this summit will turn out to be, but surely it's been an anticipated one. I can see that the optics of this uh, are very good. And the symbolism of holding such a meeting in the current circumstances and evidently the plan to turn the relationship between ASEAN and the US into a comprehensive strategic partnership of the kind that ASEAN already has with both China and Australia. All of that looks overdue and important, sending a right sort of signal. But the question I've got, I suppose, is what really meaningfully practical will emerge from all of this. Is it just going to be a case of symbolism or can we expect a little bit more than that? Yeah, you're dealing with a region that where symbolism matter, right? And also optics matter. So, and you can't go without that, without these kind of occasions for meeting and shaking hands. So I think that's certainly not sufficient and not enough, but can't go about it without it either. So I think that's a short answer to your question. I think it's going to be a tough one, David, because before it would be serving mostly the diplomatic purposes and it would be reconfirming U.S. commitment to ASEAN centrality and ASEAN's relevance or Southeast Asia's importance in its Indo-Pacific strategy or strategies as it keeps formulating and every time ASEAN centrality features in those strategy policies. But I think this time it's going to be difficult to have really comprehensively an overarching practical outcome for everyone. I think the U.S. has very individual bilateral and strong bilateral relations with uh, individual uh, Southeast Asian countries, but to be, you know, one size fits all, all of ASEAN countries is going to be increasingly difficult. We are in a very different environment. We are uh, now not just practicing diplomacy, but there is a war in Ukraine happening that is shifting in a, in a very fundamental way the tectonic shift of the geopolitics. And even though none of the countries that are meeting in, in Washington later are directly involved, all of them are very interested and the uh, you know, uh, development do matter to everyone. And as you know, Southeast Asian countries have very different views individually on what their position should be. Uh, so it's going to be very, it's it's going to be very tense, even conversation at times, uh, because we won't be able to really talk about international diplomacy without talking about very fundamentals of international conduct, which is you know the commitment to international law and integrity of uh, territorial sovereignty and whatnot. So it's going to put uh, a lot of pressure both on the host as well as on the ASEAN attendees. Well, certainly. Ukraine hangs over this like a large specter. And your point about the fact that countries in ASEAN have cherished their sovereignty to such a great degree have taken positions with regard to Ukraine that don't seem to put an awful lot of store in the sovereignty of Ukraine, 
even if they're not necessarily outright supporting Russia, their positions in effect serve to really advantage Russia vis-a-vis Ukraine. We're going to see this play out in ASEAN countries that are hosting major international summits towards the end of this year. Indonesia is hosting the G20 in Bali, Thailand is hosting APEC, Cambodia is hosting the EAS. Russia is part of all of these things. Russia will want to come. China will want to support Russia in this. India may well too. And yet, on the other hand, the United States and other countries, many of its allies, will not want Russia to be part of all of this. There's going to be a fundamental tension here. Already there are efforts being made to try to find some kind of compromise. So how do you see Indonesia's traditional shuttle diplomacy and ability to kind of balance among different powers and take the middle lane and be able to deal with this very tense situation right now? It's very easy to feel sorry for Indonesia in this case. It's not their fault that their hosting year has come precisely at the time when Russia has behaved so atrociously. So Indonesia's got its own objectives to meet in all of this at exactly the same time as it's hosting the most important international informal institution in the world to rectify or to address many of the economic problems that have arisen as a consequence of multiple global problems. I think it's still struggling to find the way forward there. The idea of inviting President Zelensky is an important compromise. Whether that can translate practically into an effective meeting, given all the tensions, all the competing pressures that necessarily Russia's attendance at this meeting would throw up, I think we're yet to see. I'm somewhat sceptical that this can happen in a manner that will actually reinforce the validity and importance of the G20 after all of this. But I very much hope that Indonesia can somehow or other, with the support of its partners, manage all of this, and the G20 can somehow or another continue to be an important institution, notwithstanding these tensions. Well, one thing that maybe the summit could address, and I'm sure both parties would be looking to address, is, is the economic dimensions of the partnership between the ASEAN nations and the United States, and the advantages the United States can offer the ASEAN countries as they search for economic resilience and development, both seem to be talking about exactly that. And the United States has been talking about post-COVID resilience in particular, and to some extent, the impact of Ukraine is going to be playing with this. How do you see the prospects for some kind of tangible outcomes on the economic front from the summit? Well, all this time, the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy has been criticised for the lack of insufficient economic pillar, and that ever since the U.S. withdrew from the TPP, now CPTPP, you know that has been a glaring, you know, missing part that would further integrate the U.S. economy with with the regions. Particularly important in the post-COVID, where you know a lot of countries in the region uh, struggle with post-COVID-induced economic slowdown. I think with some countries, the U.S. has very strong economic relations, uh, Singapore being an example. But I think other than that, there is this missing piece. Where is U.S. role in the recovering Southeast Asia, in the recovering post-COVID Southeast Asia? We still get to see the robust kind of 
economic pillar. We're now anticipating U.S. details about the U.S. Indo-Pacific economic framework. What is it going to entail? It's supposed to be either substitute or complementary to the economic strategy. We are yet to, to hear much detail and yet to hear, you know, to what extent will concern it will actually affect or be, you know, centric around Southeast Asia. So you are very correct to say that, you know, summits such as this one coming should be, first and foremost, an opportunity to update and upgrade the economic uh, relations. This is something that the region is is the most interested in. In, in fact, I've said that many times that ASEAN can't agree on anything these days. They are, the only thing they might agree on is economic development, especially post-COVID economic recovery, perhaps. So uh, there is a strong interest in the economic agenda, whether U.S. is going to be able to f- fulfill that expectation, given its own domestic issues. It, it's still things to observe. I think this Indo-Pacific economic framework is going to be an unsubstitute, uh, something that, you know, it, it is there, but not perhaps might not satisfy many in Southeast Asia. I think it's pretty clear that Washington understands the strategic ramifications of exactly that relative lack of engagement, or at least the failure to realise the ambitions that Washington has already had for a closer economic or a restoration of its economic relationship with the region, because it's fully conscious that China has emerged as the most important economic partner of pretty well all of the ASEAN countries, with all the strategic ramifications that come from that. So again, I expect this is going to be a very important element of the discussion in Washington. Thanks very much, Sean. Thanks, David. Recently, the Taliban announced a ban on the cultivation of opium poppy in Afghanistan. Dr. Tegan Westendorf and Dr. John Coyne discuss the political, cultural and economic ramifications of the new ban and how its impact will be felt both locally and internationally. Morning John, how are you doing? Good, thanks Tegan. So today we are talking about the most recent Taliban ban on opium. Now this is also a ban on the production, use and transportation of opium and also other narcotics, alcohol and other drugs. Now, the new attempt to ban opium cultivation responds to one of the big demands of the international community since the Taliban retook the country last year, and that's drug control. Now, I think that this issue is a really perfect storm of intersecting problems and demands of the international community. And I might kick off with covering off on how big really is this problem of Afghan opium. So for context, Afghan opium supplies approximately 80% of users globally. Last year, it produced enough to be processed into 320 tonnes of heroin. And for context, if this was sold on the Australian market at the standard 0.1 gram price, it would be worth over 145 billion Australian dollars. And that's not even including the huge value increases that we know occur as products are trafficked internationally from the farm gate all the way to the end user. Look, Tegan, it's, I, I guess, you know, depending on how we look at it, and I always sort of sit there and when we're talking about opium and heroin, it is a complex and intertwined problem. So let's go, you know, first off, 1996 to 2001, okay, the global market was 
back and growing. You know, in terms of pop culture, we saw a number of, of people passing away due to overdoses. At the same time, we saw the global market in the US, this sort of moves or start to move towards synthetic opioids. And we saw the beginning probably of the opioid crisis without actually realising it. We saw a reduction in, was the start of a reduction in supply coming out of the Golden Triangle. 96 to 2001, Taliban take power. They understand from a couple of different fronts, I think, that first off there's the, the faith perspective, which is bad for religion, bad for faith to produce opium poppy in Afghanistan. On the other side of it was this reality or this sort of understanding that their opposition would need to raise money to pay for fighters, to buy firearms, etc. So what we saw there was this sort of pressure of going, well, it's in our strategic interest to reduce the supply of heroin or supply of opium and the growth of opium poppy. So all that played out well, creates a global shock. You want to really do, when people do call it, they call it um, you know, a heroin shortage. Interestingly enough, and this is to contextualise it, very little, if any, and we saw this come up in political discussions for f- about 15 years, very little Afghan heroin has found its way onto the Australian market. So, you know, we're talking about that sort of impact. Fast forward um, about 2011, when in Afghanistan, in earnest, a lot of crop eradication work was done and the Taliban's access to growing opium was starting to be really pinched by, by, force, by the US forces and DEA, amongst others. You know, at that stage, there was this... Oh, sorry, the uh, Taliban were forced to take loans in order to buy weapons and to pay for fighters. So they then increased their production of opium once again. So, And the final piece of that puzzle is, you know, right now, when the Taliban seized Kabul, what they realised is they have a very in-your-face problem, which is they have an extensive number of heroin addicts or opium addicts in Afghanistan a very visible problem. For want of a better word, it's bad for business for the Taliban. It's a very in-your-face problem. And so they've had to move quickly. Now, the real question for you and I in looking at this is, well, okay, they're, they're, trying, to, they're trying to sop up and reduce the availability domestically of Afghan heroin uh, for domestic users. They're trying to make friends with the Chinese who are trying to restrict the amount of Afghan heroin going into China. How else and how much further will they go? So will they take the same mindset that they did for the last 10 years, which is good Muslims shouldn't use opium and shouldn't use heroin, but morally and ethically we're happy to produce it if it goes elsewhere? And certainly, you know, if it goes to the American market, I can't see them being too, too worried or consumed with guilt over that. So I think there's a whole heap of question marks over it, but you can certainly see why the Taliban might be making those sorts of announcements. Absolutely. I think if we look at some specific moments in the Taliban history of bans, we can see moments that it was actually really good for business as well. So with the Taliban coming to power initially in 1994, there was at first an effort to ban cultivation. By 1996, they had figured out that there were huge profits to be made on taxing both farmers and at the lab point and trafficking out of the country. And at that point, there was a surface banning air quotes but it was actually something that was business as usual to make big money out of 
Now, the 2000 ban was the first time that there was any data, according to reputable sources like the UNODC, that there was actually a significant effect on the global supply of Afghan opium, as you mentioned before. However, this ban was rescinded within 12 months. Now, some people suggest that that might be because certain people in the administration knew that the 9-11 attacks were coming and that there was a recognition that profits were necessary to survive the predicted consequences of that kind of terrorist activity. But even if we just look at that less than one year ban... And even if we can't verify the rumours that the Taliban stockpiled large numbers of opium at the time, the effect of restricting the Afghan supply for even just a short period of time caused farm gate prices to soar 21 times, which meant that there was that much more money going into Taliban coffers. So it's interesting how over the last few decades, it's actually been regulated with, I would say, really clear strategic planning. And I think the huge question for the Taliban right now is they have switched chairs. They're no longer the rurally based non-state actor or insurgency that is allowing opium trade to happen and using that to improve relationships with farmers who have no other viable crop. Now they're the government trying to hold together a profoundly failed state with the emergence of the next non-state actor and insurgency threat in rural areas in the form of ISK. This is really quite the pickle, to put it lightly. What do you think their options are? I don't necessarily agree that the production of opium poppy in Afghanistan was strategically managed. I think the nature of tribalism there, I think that things ebbed and flowed. And central control, even from about 2010, 2011 onwards, if you think about, you know, the majority of the Taliban leaders themselves were sitting in Pakistan. They were sending people backwards and forwards, they were raising money through opium cultivation through taxation, etc. But for the most part, you know, it was, you know, this amorphous sort of organised crime, transnational serious organised crime structure. And there were some factors that went with it. So, for instance, you know, you had the Iranian border and the Pakistan border were both for all intensive purposes, free flow areas for the movement of drugs. Uh, on the other side of the border, the Iranians did their best to try to slow that up and lost a lot of people in doing so. But I don't think it's as coordinated as that. That said, um, they have some really big choices. I think at the heart of it, it's a, I think that they have to face the fact that if they don't stop the flow of, of opium poppy and growth, um, that money will feed back into ISK, it'll feed back into warlords, and it'll be that same problem that Afghanistan has posed for, for multiple decades, at least, you know, arguably even before the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. So I, I think from that perspective, they'll face some tough choices about where to to raise money from. You know, I don't think we will see the flow of money from Pakistan to the Taliban. You know, they've got their assets frozen, as you mentioned. You know, there seems to be some indication that, that China will seek to invest in rare earth mining, etc., which could provide access to, to money. But ultimately, I think that they'll have little choice but to apply taxation in the remote areas. So even, you know, it's the nature of Afghanistan. So... And what happens in Kabul is very, very different to what happens in the mountainous and more isolated regions. So, you know, like that human rights factor that so many people talk about is a really good example of this. So, you know, women had significantly more rights in Kabul in Afghanistan 
But those changes certainly didn't translate into, you know, wider into those isolated areas of Afghanistan. So I guess from my perspective, I think that, you know, part of the trade in the more remote areas will continue unabated. It'll be interesting to see, you know, whether ISK will try to raise money that way. You know, arguably that historically any opposition in Afghanistan has tried to, to use the opium markets. And, you know, one of the reasons prop eradication failed in Afghanistan under NATO and under the US was that, you know, you're asking people to take out opium poppy, plant corn or another cash crop that makes, you know, significantly less money. Now, the other part about it is, is these things are hardly and rarely stable, so... You know, we've seen a, a crackdown on the production of heroin and black tar heroin in Mexico. We've seen a real controlling of um, legitimate supplies of oxycodone. We've seen a reduction by, I think it's about 25%. We've also seen a reduced access to fentanyl coming out of, and, it's, and other synthetic opioids coming out of China. So, you know, we've got a big demand in the US of reducing supply, which in itself will have a pull factor, I suspect. Absolutely. I think what you've mentioned about where does the money come from is a really key question, especially for the international community, not just in terms of the extraordinary potential for criminal profit that lies in in the uh, large amount of opium that's produced in Afghanistan, but if you take away a primary or even just major source of income for people, there needs to be, I'd argue, a development strategy for replacing that with viable crops. Now, Afghanistan is facing an incredible drought at the moment. Poppy is already an easier crop to farm in terms of the water requirements than alternatives like wheat and fresh produce. I wonder about the sustainability of this kind of ban. If you're talking about this is a country where 70% of people live rurally, about 80% of livelihoods are agriculture dependent, and the UN and IFC is currently uh, citing stats of 95% of households already experiencing acute food insecurity, and that might be stating it lightly. We're talking about you know, an impending famine here and the potential for a full-blown humanitarian crisis. It almost sounds comical to me to talk about successfully enforcing a law enforcement strategy of reducing illicit drug economies in a place where people are hungry. Look, first off, I think it's it's unlikely that anyone in the West would be able to have, under a Taliban rule, will have any market impact on, on opium production. I think secondly, and you know, unfortunately this has long been the case in developing nations, but certainly in Afghanistan, I think that you know, the weight of these problems are borne by children, by women. And so, yeah, look, we, we are facing down with that, that there will be an ongoing catastrophe. You know, and, and, you know, it takes a level of maturity, even in an authoritarian state, to put sort of some sort of rule of order, and I say that in a general sense, but Afghanistan, for all the money that was pumped into Afghanistan, for all the military forces, etc., you know, the Taliban faced some of the same problems. So, you know, they face a border with Iran that has holes everywhere in it that were poorly controlled. They face the same problems with Pakistan. Um, but admittedly, I don't see Pakistan supporting ISK um, or any of the other opposition forces there, but... 
you know, they still face those same fundamentals uh, and with all their assets frozen. So, you know, it will be hard for them to walk away from the opium market. Uh, and it, it's even hard, even if they didn't, if they did want to walk away from it, to actually put it in place. But, you know, there is a vested interest in this. If they can't do that, the, their very survival is at risk. So, um, you know, it, it depends on how desperate they really see the situation. Thanks, John. Thank you. That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with... Carly Winkler, Deputy Director of ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, Bart Hogaveen, Head of Cyber Capacity Building, and Jocelyn Kang, Program Manager and Technical Specialist with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre. Dr. Huangle Tu and Dr. David Angle, Senior Analysts with ASPE's Defence Strategy and National Security Program. Dr. Tegan Westendorf, Analyst with ASPE's Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program and Dr. John Coyne, Head of ASPE Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.